Well, let's turn to John in the 12th chapter. And I'm sorry for a little typo on the bulletin. Kevin Jones will be speaking at 11.15. Hope we didn't give you a heart attack, brother, and thinking you're preaching twice today. So. Okay, well, let's turn to John chapter 12, and we will continue our work through John's gospel. <clears throat> Had a little bit of a cold all week long, a little bit of cough, so I'm just hoping it'll stay at bay today while I preach. In John chapter 12, we have a record of an event that is found in all four Gospels. The traditional name for this event is the Triumphal Entry. and It's one of the least understood and underappreciated events in the Gospels. The term New World Order... Perhaps you've heard of it. It represents a curious convergence of evangelical and secularist outlooks on the future. Evangelicals like Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and literary icons like Orson Welles and Susan Collins have written of a future new world order. The new world order is the feared destiny of the nations, in which the sovereignty of individual nations is swallowed up by a monolithic, authoritarian, one-world government at the end of history. The New World Order is said to be the agenda of a cabal of sinister bankers, politicians, and clandestine organizations. Popular evangelical writers in the 20th century, the left-behind crowd, made enormous efforts to convince a generation of Christians that the new world order is swiftly coming upon us. Now, I don't want to be overly contrarian, but I I suggest to you that the new world order actually began some 2,000 years ago when a young Jewish man humbly rode his donkey up to Jerusalem's gates. A week later, that peasant arose from a grave claiming... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And friends, he has never relinquished any of that authority. What was this strange donkey ride all about? It's actually going to take a few Sundays to unravel the mystery. And today we're going to spend a lot of time outside of the Gospel of John. But for now, let's begin reading with verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now let's make three quick observations about our passage. First, did you notice what John omitted? In the synoptics, Jesus deliberately, sovereignly orchestrated this event. Jesus arranged with a man in Bethany to have a young donkey prepared for his use. Second, notice what John includes. If you turn back momentarily to John 11 and verse 55, let's read verses found only in John's Gospel. Verse 55, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And now skip ahead to John 12 and verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. In the synoptics, Jerusalem seems eager to embrace Jesus as their king. But John's gospel forbids such a hasty conclusion. The chief priests have already planned to arrest Jesus and to execute his followers. So the synoptics use the triumphal entry to display Jesus' sovereignty, whereas John's gospel uses it as a foil to the duplicitous schemes of the Jewish leadership. Both approaches, however, tell us there is a storm coming. It's already brewing out there on the horizon. This donkey ride is the calm before the storm. And third, notice the monumentally important words of verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Now, friends, do we understand these things? When did it occur to the disciples that there was more going on here than first met the eye? Well, keep reading. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written, Zechariah, about him and had been done to him. Whatever else you make of this event, you must interpret it in light of Jesus' subsequent glorification. When Jesus was glorified, the disciples then understood, oh, there's so much more to this donkey ride. Zechariah's prophecy somehow was fulfilled. So friends, let's make sure over the next couple of weeks that we really do understand this as well. And let's not be misled by popular theories as to what's really happening in the world. So today, would you zoom in on one word at the end of verse 12? The word Jerusalem. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? 
The most contested piece of real estate in world history is the Temple Mount that remains so even to this day. And it was that Temple Mount that was situated out there right on Jesus' immediate horizon as he plodded up toward the city gates on the back of a donkey. Now, let's zoom out and let's take a very wide-angled approach to this passage. In the 16th century, the German Protestant theologian and cartographer Heinrich Bunting combined his disciplines in the production of a very famous map of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits at the center of a three-leaved clover. There's a green leaf that grows out of Jerusalem to the east, and it represents Asia. And there is a yellow leaf that grows down to the south, and it represents Africa. Finally, a red leaf grows out to the west, and it represents Europe. And figuratively, Jerusalem lies at the center of the world. Benjamin Disraeli proclaimed, The view of Jerusalem is the history of the world. It is more, it is the history of heaven and earth. The Jewish Midrash proclaims, The land of Israel is the center of the world. Jerusalem is the center of the land. The Holy Temple is the center of Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies is the center of the Holy Temple. The Holy Ark is the center of the Holy Holy of Holies and the foundation stone from which the world was established. Simon Montefiore's magisterial history, Jerusalem, the biography, opens with a startling line. The history of Jerusalem is the history of the world. He continues, it is also the chronicle of an often pernicious provincial town among the Judean hills. Jerusalem was once regarded as the center of the world, and today that is more true than ever. The city is the focus of the struggle between the Abrahamic religions and the shrine for increasingly popular Christian, Jewish, and Islamic fundamentalism. The strategic battlefield of clashing civilizations the front line between atheism and faith, the cynosure of secular fascination, the object of internet myth-making, and the illuminated stage for the cameras of the world in the age of 24-hour news. That is today's Jerusalem. Well, how did it ever become so famous and so important? After Noah's flood... Canaanites moved into the land that God later promised Abraham forever. Before Joshua, those Canaanites occupied the promised land for some 1,800 years. I'm sorry, some 1,600 years. 800 years after Joshua, Judah was swallowed up by the Babylonian Empire. So when you do the math, the Jews possessed the land for no more than 800 years. Only half the time that the Canaanites occupied the land. And the Canaanites had it first. So who truly owns the land? Now the city of Jerusalem was possessed by the Jews for only 
400 of those 800 years. David conquered the city sometime after 1000 B.C., 400, sometime right around 1000 B.C., 400 years after Joshua, and some 400 years before the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. That means that Abraham's children possessed the city of Jerusalem, understand this, for a mere 15% of the entire chronology of the Old Testament from Babel all the way down to Malachi. 15% of the time. It's kind of staggering, isn't it? For most of the time, 85% of the time, Jerusalem belonged to somebody else. So who owns the land? Today, the Jews have owned much of the land since 1948 and the old city of Jerusalem since 1967. And that means the Jews have owned Jerusalem for just 11% of world history from Babel all the way up to the present. 11%. So who has the greatest claim on the city? You see why it's so contested? The first extra-biblical reference to Jerusalem comes from the reign of the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten. Akhenaten occupied Egypt's throne when Joshua made his invasion of the Holy Land. On a clay tablet written in Babylonian, the following letter was dispatched to Akhenaten from someone in Canaan, we don't know who. It says this, At the feet of the king I have fallen seven and seven times. Here is the deed that Milkali and Shuwartatu have done against the land. They have led the troops of Gezer against the law of the king. The land of the king has gone over to the Habiru. And now a town belonging to Jerusalem has gone over to the men of Kiltu. May the king listen to Abdi Hippa, your servant, and send archers. And that is the earliest reference that we have to the city of Jerusalem. And that letter is of dual significance. First of all, the reference to the Habairu invading the land is quite likely a reference to the Hebrews invading the Holy Land. And secondly, the first time we hear the word Jerusalem, it is a city under siege. And that is an eerily prophetic preview of a long history of the city. That city has been contested for millennia by the lords of the earth. Now, Jerusalem's first mention in the Bible is also prophetic. Let's turn all the way back to Joshua chapter 10. Let's find the first reference in the Bible. Joshua chapter 10. We're going to run through a number of Old Testament texts and let them lead us all the way up to Jesus' donkey ride. God, of course, brought the Hebrew children up out of slavery in Egypt by the hand of Moses. And now it falls to Joshua to lead them into the promised land. Joshua has two military successes, one at Jericho and a second at Ai. And the occupants of the land have become alarmed. And so they will band together into two different alliances. There is a southern alliance, and it appears beginning with verse 1. It is headquartered in the pagan city of Jerusalem. Joshua 10, verse 1. 
As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, where it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. And friends, that is your first biblical reference to Jerusalem. That's a pagan city at the head of a pagan confederacy against Joshua. Now, in the rest of the chapter, Joshua and the Hebrews win a stunning military victory over Jerusalem and over its confederacy. The king of Jerusalem is actually slain. But despite success, the Hebrews failed to drive out all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Joshua chapter 15 points this out. So let's turn to Joshua chapter 15. In Joshua 15, Joshua will describe the allotment of the land of Israel in the aftermath of the conquest. And after giving a detailed account of the cities he conquered, the end of the chapter, verse 63, Joshua 15, 63 records, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now, when we turn to the book of Judges, chapter 1, Jerusalem again appears in the narrative. And at first, it appears to be captured by warriors from Judah. Judges 1 and verse 8 says, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. But the city of Jerusalem was included in the allotment of land given to Benjamin rather than Judah. And apparently, once warriors from Judah left, Benjamin never followed through and took complete control of the city. So Josh, Judges chapter 1 and verse 21 says this, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, although the Benjamites and Jebusites jointly appear to occupy Jerusalem, the city continued to be a predominantly Jebusite city. And we know that from Judges chapter 19. I'm giving you lots of chapters. You can, you're welcome to turn or just listen either way. All right, Judges chapter 19. In Judges chapter 19, we have a story concerning a Levite and his concubine. And I will not relate all the sordid details of the story. But in this chapter, in verse 10, we read that the Levite arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. Jebus was the Canaanite name still used for the city. And in verse 11, Jerusalem is called the city of the Jebusites. 
And further, in verse 12, it is called the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. So clearly, Jerusalem is still a pagan city in Judges. And that brings us then to 2 Samuel. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, Jerusalem will finally be conquered by a man named King David. And this passage really is very important because it connects us to Jesus and his riding of his donkey into Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Beginning with verse 6, we have a description of the capturing of the city. By the way, when we read this, it sounds a bit insensitive, and I'm not going to explain all that right now. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David, you cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Of course, it wasn't called that at the time, but that's what it became called. And David said, On that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Again, he's not referring to the actual lame and blind, but he's responding to the Jebusites. Therefore, it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. So here at long last, we have a description of the Hebrews, under David's leadership, taking the coveted city of Jerusalem. Now David's reign runs from the year 1010 to 970 B.C. And the year that he takes Jerusalem is probably about 1003 B.C., give or take. Probably about 1003. And as I mentioned, for the next 400 years, Jerusalem remains largely under the control of the Hebrews, the United Kingdom, followed by the southern kingdom of Judah. And of course, David's successor comes along, Solomon, and he crowns the city with this magnificent temple in the year 966. And that temple would remain up there at the top of Jerusalem until the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar in 600 B.C. All right? So we've got about 400 years there where the Jews are going to occupy that city. It's theirs. However... God made a promise to King David to establish his throne for how long? Forever. Just turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here we have a record of the words of the prophet Nathan to David. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. And God made the same promise to David's son Solomon. So tell me why within a brief four centuries 
was that city, together with its glittering temple, reduced to ash. How do you fit forever into just 11% of world history? And don't tell me you can add a millennium and get to forever. That's not going to get you to forever. When you consider that Rome endured for more than a millennium, two millennia if you count the Byzantine Empire, and Egypt for three millennia, 400 years seems all too brief a lifespan for a city and a throne that God promised forever. How to explain that? Well, friends, maybe we need to take a closer look at Jesus' donkey ride up to the city gate of Jerusalem. And maybe, like the disciples, what we don't understand at first, we will begin to understand. Maybe a kingdom was indeed established forever. But first, let's go to Lamentations. In Lamentations, we find a shocking scene. As the name suggests, the book is a lament. It is a funeral dirge. But it is no ordinary funeral. It is the funeral for an entire city of people. Lamentations 1 and verse 1 ask a provocative question. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. As Lamentations unfolds, we learn of the gruesome siege and destruction of a proud city. And because there is a modern city of Jerusalem, we tend to forget that that city perished in the 6th century B.C. Now, would you observe two features of Lamentations? First, would you consider who it is that destroyed Jerusalem? In the book of Daniel, a man named Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is identified as the most powerful emperor in all human history. He alone is the head of gold. He could act like a barnyard animal for seven years, eat grass, and let his hair grow long, and there's nothing you could do about it. He's the king. It was Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem. We know that, right? But guess what? You wouldn't know that from reading Lamentations because the head of gold doesn't even get named. When you read the annals of ancient kings, they are full of braggadocio about their great military accomplishments. But here is the greatest king of them all. He doesn't even mention, um, doesn't, his name doesn't even mention, isn't even mentioned in Lamentations. There we go. Rather, when you read Lamentations, the book insists that was God Almighty. God Almighty destroyed that city. The same God who gave the promised land to Abraham forever and who established David's throne forever, that same God just destroyed that whole city. 
I'd explain them. And secondly, would you consider just how complete the destruction of Jerusalem really was? And Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, includes two distinctive literary devices that communicate just how thorough the destruction was. Unfortunately, you can't see this all that well in our English translations. But if you'll take a quick glance through the whole book, you will notice a pattern. In chapter 1, you have 22 verses. In chapter 2, 22 verses. In chapter 3, we have 22 tripled. We have 66 verses. In chapter 24, 22 verses. And in chapter 5, 22 verses. Now, there were no verse divisions in the original. But these verses actually correspond to lines of poetry that were in the original. And the Hebrew alphabet has 22 characters. In chapter 1, each line or each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet from A to Z, as it were, from alpha to omega, from A to Z, an acrostic pattern. The same is true of chapter 2. In chapter 3, there are three lines of poetry corresponding to each letter of the alphabet. So A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C, and so forth. And that same acrostic pattern is found in chapter 4, but not in chapter 5 for reasons that I won't go into now. This deliberate arrangement communicates completeness, thoroughness, It's like when we say from A all the way down to Z, from the beginning to the end, Lamentations is a delicately crafted lament of God's thorough destruction of an entire city. Now the second literary device is a chiastic arrangement of the material such that chapter 1 corresponds with chapter 5. Chapter 2 corresponds with chapter 4. Chapter 3, like the point of the arrow, the longest chapter, stands out in isolation from the rest. And the whole arrangement draws our attention then to the central verses of the book, the tip of the arrow. So let's notice them in verses 31, 32, and 33. Here is the center, here's the main point that Jeremiah is driving at. And these are really, truly glorious verses that tell us that in the middle of judgment, there is mercy. Verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Imagine picking your way through the embers of Jerusalem. Her streets are silent. Her children are slaves in distant lands. Her temple lies in ruins. Her golden vessels pillaged. Her timbers reduced ash. And along comes this prophet... His name is Jeremiah. And he says to you, the Lord will not cast off 
forever. What do you mean forever? I thought this throne was supposed to be here forever. No, the Lord is not going to cast off forever. He will have compassion. His love for you is steadfast. You don't deserve it, but His love for you is steadfast. That's hopeful. Now, after some 70 years, a remnant returned and rebuilt the city walls and the temple. But even so, Jerusalem was only a vestige of her former glory. That post-exilic temple was, in fact, much smaller. The old men wept when they saw it. Would you know at a critical point, when Israel first built the tabernacle, and when Solomon built the original temple, we're told the glory of the Lord, like a cloud, came and filled those buildings. But we're never told that about the post-exilic temple. God's presence never returned to that post-exilic temple. So when we turn from the Old to the New Testament, we are indeed waiting for God to return to Jerusalem. We're waiting for the glory to come back to the temple. We are waiting for the Lord to return suddenly to His temple, as Ezekiel prophesied. We are looking for the eternal glory and the everlasting covenant of the true King. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for the forever kingdom and the temple to be filled again with the presence of God. Now in Babylon, under captivity, one of Israel's sons, a prophet named Daniel, was given an astonishing view of the future. It's to his prophecy that we now need to turn if we're going to understand What's going on when Jesus rides his donkey up to the street of Jeru- up to the gate of Jerusalem some 6 centuries later? What's really going on? Well, let's go first to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. In this passage King Nebuchadnezzar has a remarkable dream and he seeks to know its interpretation as would you. And Daniel prefaces his interpretation of the dream in verse 21 with the claim, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And then beginning in verse 31, Daniel describes an image, a great statue of a man. And his head is a head of gold. And his chest and his arms are silver. His torso and his thighs are bronze. His legs and his feet are iron and clay. And Daniel relates that a stone was supernaturally cut out of a mountain. It was cut out with no human hands. And it struck the entire image and it pulverized it like so much chaff driven away by the wind. Imagine that. A stone that just comes and destroys that whole image. Beginning in verse 36, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that those metals represent four great kingdoms, increasingly inferior to the head of gold. And the head of gold, of course, is Nebuchadnezzar himself. So he had four kingdoms, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman, four kingdoms. And during the intertestamental period, that is between Malachi and Matthew, 
There were numerous attempts to liberate Jerusalem from these foreign invaders, these four kingdoms, but none of them were ultimately successful. And Jerusalem remained a vassal state right up to the time of Jesus. It was under siege, as it were, in the days of Jesus. However, during the time of Jesus, understand that Jerusalem begins to recover some of her ancient glory. The Romans greatly enlarged the city. Herod the Great overhauled that whole temple and rebuilt it on a scale that surpassed Solomon's temple. In fact, it was one of the wonders of the world. It was the greatest temple anywhere in the entire Roman world. It was absolutely magnificent. That was going on in Jesus' day. Now, in that context, would you read verses 44 through 45 very carefully? And in the days of those kings, all right, what's the time period? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. We've heard about that forever kingdom before, haven't we? The God of heaven in the days of those kings will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And again, pay very careful attention to how verse 44 begins and in the days of those kings. So there's a succession of four kingdoms, and in the days of those kings, God will establish an everlasting kingdom. All right? So imagine with me that you're a Jew living in the first century, and you know that Israel ruled Jerusalem for a mere 400 years, and you know that God promised David a throne forever. And you know that a central verse of Lamentation states, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. He will not forsake. And so every year you make a Passover pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And every year you witness a magnificent new temple steadily rising from Jerusalem's summit. Ultimately, it will stand three times taller than Solomon's temple. And you know that God's presence never yet returned to that post-exilic temple. But Ezekiel the prophet tells us it will. Finally, you know there has been a succession of four empires. And you are living at the end of in the days of those kings. That's when you're living, in the days of those kings. You're in the the fourth empire. So how do you interpret this? How do you interpret all this? How are you putting your whole Old Testament together? Is God's kingdom coming at last? Well, if God's kingdom is coming, who will be the king? Now, you knew that I wasn't going to get out of Daniel without going to chapter 7. So let's go there. All right, very quickly, Daniel 7. Daniel, like Nebuchadnezzar, has a vision. 
In the vision, he sees a succession, get this, of four great beasts. And those four beasts represent four kingdoms, just like the four medals of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And just like Nebuchadnezzar's four kingdoms were succeeded by an everlasting kingdom, so Daniel sees an everlasting kingdom. And this is what he saw, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, look at him, a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So who is this king who reigns on forever? The Son of Man. Now at long last, let's turn back to John chapter 12. And let's situate ourselves in the crowds thronging toward Jerusalem. You have wound your way up to Jerusalem through the mountain pass from Jericho. Your whole land is under Roman oppression. The fourth empire... Jerusalem has been oppressed by invading empires longer than it was ever held by the Davidic dynasty. Imagine that. It's a Sunday morning in the spring of A.D. 30. A great procession makes its way triumphantly into the city from the west to mark the beginning of Passover week. At its head was a military commander named Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. He represents the power of that fourth kingdom. And behind him stretches a long line of imperial cavalry and soldiers. But across town there was a pilgrim throng coming up from Galilee. And in that group is a man who for three years has been preaching the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does he call himself? Son of man. That is his most common self-designation. And he has been performing extraordinary miracles, like opening the eyes of the blind, And now raising the dead. And he comes to Jerusalem from the east. Ezekiel prophesied the glory of the God of Israel would come in from the east. And that was the same direction from which David's son Solomon came riding into town on the king's own mule. More on that next time. Jesus mounts a donkey. And you recall the prophecy of Zechariah. Look at verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So friends, do you understand what's happening? 
Would you just let the whole background of the Old Testament just pressurize the scene? I worked through all that material so it really comes to bear on this scene. Would you throw palm branches in the street before this great king? I suspect you would. Then explain to me why that man hangs dead on a cross by a week's end. Zechariah said nothing about the king dying, only reigning. I woke up this morning, I flipped on my phone, and I read Zechariah 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Guess what? There's a lot of military success going on there. Where is the death? Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. And let's not make the same mistake. Let's make sure over the next couple of weeks you really get this right. Friends, that all happened 2,000 years ago. But do we understand what happened? Did God establish an everlasting kingdom in Jerusalem? Did God establish an everlasting kingdom in the days of those four kings? Has God's new world order already begun? Did the world fundamentally change when Jesus rode his donkey up to the city gates? The answer, I believe, is yes, emphatically yes. I don't know what else to do with these passages. Friends, if you postpone Jesus' reign to some indefinite future date, you will read the rest of the New Testament in a profoundly different way. You will live your life in perpetual fear of some mythical new world order that unseats Christ from His throne. You will miss the whole heartbeat of prophecy. Prophecy is the unveiling of the reign and the triumph of Jesus Christ over all the rebellious nations. Prophecy is the unveiling of the success of Jesus' gospel for the nations. So are you willing to just look around you at the chaotic, rebellious, confusing world and nevertheless by faith, and I do mean by faith, by faith declare there is more to the story then first meets the eye, just as there was back in the first century. There was more to the donkey ride than the disciples first understood. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Friends, there is a message, a definite message in this donkey ride for all of us. And we have to deliberately look at the world and say, there is more going on here than we understand. Jesus is on his throne, and the rulers had better kiss the sun, as Psalm 2 put it. How do you explain the Cold War, the Gulf War, the war on terror, COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, a global recession, a stock market crash? Do you run off looking for some new conspiracy theory to just sort of put it all together in your mind? That's the first place you turn turn to the news. Maybe somebody on Fox News has it all figured out for me. 
Is your first impulse to look to some nefarious cabal of world rulers who truly controls reality? Friends, I don't deny there are evil men in our world with evil agendas, and they are alive and well. But friends, you have to understand this. God has already taken the most diabolical conspiracy of them all, the plot to murder Jesus and transform his cross into a throne. And God sat on his throne in the heavens and he laughed at the vain attempts of men to throw down his Messiah. That cross became his throne. And friends, after arriving in Jerusalem on his donkey, Jesus all of a sudden said something very interesting. He had been speaking of the future hour of his glory, but as soon as he shows up on his horse, he says, guess, on his donkey, he says this, the hour of my glorification has come. It's here. It's arrived. Look at John 17 and verse 1. Look at what he prayed to the Father. Don't go there now. The hour of his glorification, his glory has come. Friends, Jesus transformed the cross into a throne and he reigned over death and the curse. And are you willing to believe that even if we don't understand it first, Jesus did indeed come riding into town on a donkey and a mere seven days later, he possessed all authority in heaven and on earth. And friends, Jesus has never relinquished any of his authority. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he rules. We thank you that he reigns. We thank you, Lord, that he reigns over death and the grave. We thank you, Lord, that he rules over the nations. And Lord, in all the chaos and all the despair and all the uncertainty of our world, Lord, we are here today because your Son reigns. And your Son is guiding all human history toward his intended conclusion. And I pray that our confidence and our joy would be in him today. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.